It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain, somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. I'm retired astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. A lot of people grow up wanting to be astronauts and fly in space, including me, but it is something only a very few people have actually done. Now we've talked with a science fiction author who wrote about it, a flight director who manages the missions, and an engineer who designed the rockets that make it all happen, but we've always wanted to include someone who's actually done it. And yes, Sandy could just interview me about my spaceflight experience, but as the hosts, we prefer to talk to others about their experiences, even relating to our respective fields. So today, on our 40th episode of The Adrenaline Zone, we're talking to a friend and colleague of mine, retired astronaut Colonel Doug Hurley, who I flew with on my final flight, STS-135. He also commanded the first crewed commercial orbital spacecraft for SpaceX and received the prestigious Congressional Space Medal of Honor. And we caught up with Doug while at home relaxing over Memorial Day. We're delighted to welcome to the Adrenaline Zone this week a friend and colleague of mine from the astronaut office, Doug Hurley. Doug, we're excited to have you on, on board with us this week. Yeah, it's so good to be here and, uh, and selfishly a great chance to catch up with you, Sandy. Well, and it's great to meet you, Doug. Um, we are really looking forward to this conversation. So we're going to start off like we always do by asking uh, our guest, uh, where'd you come from? Uh, what made you want to be an astronaut? And what was your path to actually getting into the astronaut program? Yeah, I grew up in upstate New York, so really small town, but I had a, you know just an incredible fascination with science fiction and astronomy and then planes. Uh, and then it kind of came together as I was in high school, we had a college information night. We had a Navy ROTC recruiter come, and this was on the heels of my folks telling me I needed to figure out a good way to pay for college. And and when the recruiter said, hey, full tuition scholarship, these different universities, which were all you know incredible universities, and you might be able to fly jets for the Navy or the Marine Corps, it kind of uh, clicked in my 16-year-old head to give it a shot and a leap of faith and was lucky enough to get the scholarship the next year and was off to Tulane to start my career. Very cool. And then you went, uh, uh, you were a Marine Corps pilot, got your wings of gold, flew Hornets, F-18s, went to test pilot school and entered the program. A, a great track with a lot of fun on the way with, with what's called MOTS-1, which is kind of like the Marine Corps Top Gun in a way. Uh, so we got something in common there, but uh, really neat. So as many people and people might not know, we have a lot of what might be considered basic training when we come into the astronaut corps, you know, our ask candy are, how does that compare to what you went through in pilot training as, as your sort of basic training in the Marine Corps? I always wondered how it did. I mean, you learn vehicles, you fly them. I kind of feel like the, the NASA training program was very similar to flight school. It felt like it just flight school, maybe on steroids because Certainly, as you remember, and in our class, we started out doing the shuttle systems and, you know, each shuttle system is about, at least at that point, it felt like to me was as complicated as learning an airplane, frankly. And so you're kind of putting that together. And then, of course, you know, we had the station training had started with our class. So we were getting some formal space station training at that point, even though we basically just had a couple modules up there uh, when we started. But it, it really did feel like that. It was, you know, get the brief on a system, then do a single system trainer with a classmate or two, and then throw a few of you in the simulator together, together to go through, you know, nominal procedures and then emergency procedures. So very much like what we did in flight school. What other kind of training did you do, though? Uh, obviously, you were, you're talking specific training on the shuttle because that's the program you went into. But, you know, uh, physiology of space, flight, you know, keeping yourself in condition and orbital mechanics. I mean, I, I would imagine there's a lot more than just the systems involved. Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, you had photography, orbital mechanics, which, of course, I could hardly spell when it, when it started. Um, you know, and then you have these, you know, 50-pound brain people in your class that have PhDs and, are, you know, the dissertations that they did. And it's it's so impressive. You know, that's one of the things that, 
like everybody you meet in the astronaut office has just this incredible story. Anyway, you know, we had uh, folks come in to teach us how to do public speaking and presentations and gosh, I mean, you name it. We really had a lot of different things besides, you know, learning the space shuttle. Also, you know, our classes, we had the T-38. So we started training in the T-38 and you had a number of classmates that had never flown in airplanes before. So they went off to Pensacola for a little while. And then for our class, which I think worked out really well, and they did a really kind of a, a six or eight week short course, like we did as pilot training, as we worked our way up to a solo and got familiar with flying an airplane that, you know, maybe flew 150 or 200 miles an hour, whereas throwing them in the back of a T-38, which went significantly faster than that. So it was kind of a crawl, walk, run for for those folks. And then they got integrated into the T-38 training and then started flying with us. The pilots also did STA training, the shuttle training aircraft training as well. So, and then the other part, and Sandy will remember this very well, is we started these uh, essentially road shows where we would go as a class and visit each one of the different NASA centers. And you got to be exposed to that and what each NASA specific center did, either to support you or to support spaceflight in general. And then, um, you know, kind of the other part of it was, is you got to know your classmates a little better. You spent a lot of time with your classmates and, and did some, some healthy bonding, I guess we would put it that way. And then, and at some point, I, I guess you, you, you cross a threshold, right? Where, okay, the basic stuff is over. Now you can get an mission specific. Typically the way it works, um, and still to this day, the way it works is it's roughly a two year process of instruction and evaluation and training is what they call it. And then you are blessed to be, to, to be promoted or to be your, your title changes from ASTAN or astronaut candidate to astronaut and you get your silver pen. Those, um, graduations, I guess is probably the best way to say it have changed drastically over the years to the, you know, our class, it was pretty much Charlie Precourt said, or, or maybe it was even Rommel. I don't even remember Kurt or Kent Robinger, uh, who was the chief basically was like, Oh, come on up and get your pin kind of thing. And, and they've been a little more formal than that, or a little bit more where they've involved families and stuff like that. But our class, you know, the, and then you're off to the races. And so that was about for us. We started in the late summer, early fall of 2000. And then that took us basically to. 2002 and you know at the beginning of 2002 we were released into the wild to do our technical assignments which is astronaut speak for your ground job i'm a little jealous of your class because you know that we only had a two-week training session for those of us who never had anything to do with airplanes before and the fact that some of your mission specialists got to spend six to eight weeks really learning the flying in the in a broad way was i was great yeah, I think that was part of it was I had feedback from previous classes. It was like, you know, you're sticking me in the back of an airplane, potentially with a guy or gal. I think just guys. Well, there were a couple. We had we had a couple. We had a couple. We had Am and Susan and uh, Eileen. But you're putting them in the back seat of an aircraft that goes several hundred miles an hour, a jet, high performance jet trainer. And then the other part was, is many of us not. I had kind of time in both, but many of the pilots were single seat pilots. <laughs> they didn't have a lot of time flying with somebody in the back seat anyway. So, uh, which maybe a lot of people on those first back seat flights uh, end up not coming home with their breakfast. Uh, but I guess you get used. Yeah, to it. I was fine. <laughs> it was fine. <laughs> That's your story, and you're sticking to it. No, it was. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think the feedback was just, you know, from previous classes, it's like, hey, if you could just kind of give us an opportunity to maybe learn the basics at a, a bit of a slower pace. And then it, it was a good fit because we were able to send folks to Pensacola or down to Corpus Christi, which is where the Navy you know, does their primary flight training, which is which is where you start. So as far as I know, we still do that. And I think for our class, it was four people. So it was... um Obviously, my future wife, uh, Karen, got to do that. She'd come from an uh, academic and uh, engineering background, but no aviation. Drew Foistel, who was a geophysicist, and then Steve Bowen, submariner, um, and then Megan, Megan MacArthur also. You know, they had come from backgrounds where they didn't have 
a lot of flight time and and they spent some time over in Pensacola. You know, it's completely different, right? You go from this general training, which was fun because you got to learn a lot about a bunch, but then you go into your mission specific flight and you had a great commander on your first flight, our, you know, our dear friend, Mark Polanski. And I know that makes all the difference. And I want to ask you about your second flight because I'm biased, but, you know, <laughs> that adjustment to mission specific, you know, how was that as you, as you came in as a rookie into your first flight? Well, as you remember, you know, when our class came in, you know, the astronaut office was as big as it's ever in history. And so if you combine that, those numbers with, you know, the Columbia accident and a lot of folks in line, because I think when we showed up, there was probably two thirds of the astronaut office hadn't flown in space yet. And so many of your class was still waiting to fly. And so it was a, it was a fairly long wait, I think, for us. So getting that call into the office, you know, and having the chief say, hey, I assigned you to STS-127. I had just gotten back from Russia. I'd been over there for uh, a little over a year, almost a year and a half, actually. And it was so great to hear. And then I didn't know Mark that well. And and then, of course, getting assigned for the first time, you're just over the, you know, cliche wise over the moon. But it was just amazing. And Mark absolutely did an incredible, incredible job. He's an incredible leader and he managed the crew. We had four, um, four rookies. That's a lot for our audience. And two flown folks, uh, Julie Payette and Dave Wolf. And um, those two are incredible personalities. Let's just put it that way. And so Mark, he had his work cut out for him, for sure. How long was it from the time you entered the, the program from the very beginning, Doug, uh, until you actually flew? Um, until I actually flew was nine years. Wow. And that was one, that was one of the deterrents for me, frankly, because I was going through the same kind of decision process you were. And it's like, God, I got to wait for nine years, but I really respect you for toughing it out. And then you got to fly. So I, I, I want to hear about, you know, riding that great candle up as the cliche goes uh, from the pilot seat viewpoint, you know, and I mean, our, our listeners have never done this. So is it loud? A lot of G vibration. Well, what's the whole thing feel like as you're going up in the shuttle? Yeah, I, I think yes to all those, uh, Sandy. I, I mean, it really, you know, to set the table a little bit, you know, we had scrubbed five times on STS-127 over the course of about a month, month and a half, two trips to Kennedy that we had a hydrogen leak uh, a couple times. And then, of course, you know, we were then launching in July in Florida in the late afternoon and, and of course, you know, thunderstorms. So, and, you know, it's it's always like this the day we walked out that we actually flew it was raining and so um, here we go again <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> thinking, you know it literally groundhog day yeah you're just like oh here we go here we go you lay on your back for three plus hours and then you come out of the nine minute holes and it's like holy cow we're going this time and all that stuff you know the the vibrations of the you know after the apus have started with the engines doing their gimbal checks and then certainly you feel the engine start. And then as soon as the booster's light, then it's, uh, and I've told people this before, there were two times in my life in a flying vehicle where I felt like I didn't have total control over the, of the, over the machine. And it was the two ascents on the solid rocket boosters for shuttle. I mean, it's just, you are along for the ride, you know, because as a pilot, you pride yourself in knowing the vehicle, knowing the system and knowing you can handle anything. But I mean, the physics of the ascent were just incredible for those first two minutes and eight seconds. So it's not like the acceleration of a catapult shot off an aircraft carrier, but it's much more extended acceleration, getting you up to how many Gs uh, sustained as you're going up as the, as the vehicle's accelerating. Yeah, with shuttle, it was, um, you think of it this way, it's just this constant increasing acceleration. And it was a pretty good jolt off the pad when the boosters lit. Maybe not quite, certainly not one of like a, a higher weight catapult shot would have been, but it was pretty significant, noticeable. Um, but, you know, you're burning that liquid hydrogen and oxygen. I mean, you're, a, you know, Olympic swimming pool every second kind of thing. Uh, so you're getting that much lighter as you're ascending. And then, of course, the solid rockets burn really rough. So it's it's just like uh, teeth chattering almost. And, and I mean, if you watch the... Uh, in you know, crew cabin video. Um, and we had some, you can just see that everybody's heads just kind of bouncing around. And I remember at 135, we had it flashed to the, you know, on our video, flashed to the crew. And all you can see is Rex's Grin. giant smile. 
while. Uh, but you're kind of doing this and, 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 and then accelerating, accelerating. And then of course, then the, the boosters get you f- through that first thickest part of the atmosphere and then their work is done and they come off. There's a big flash. Even in the daytime, there's a big flash in the windows where the booster separate, separation motors fire. And then it's just smooth as glass. And then you work your way up to towards the last two minutes the engines begin to start throttling as you reach three G's. And and that was a design profile for the shuttle because it's a 250,000 pound vehicle and you just, you're not going to pull six G's with a, a vehicle that big. So the engines would throttle as you were getting closer to main engine cutoff and you'd peak it right at three G's, but you sustained it for a couple minutes at the end of the profile. You know, Doug, I had a completely different experiences every time I launched, you know, the three times, but I was sitting in different seats each time. And you were, of course, in the pilot seat twice. So how did the two launches compare from that viewpoint? I think the difference was both for ascent and entry. I just felt like I was a little farther ahead on SCS-135 than 127. I mean, you're just, your first flight, it's just the sensations and the actual moments as you're ascending, especially after scrubbing five times, you're just like, what in the heck is going on? And you're just, you know, you, you've done these simulators so many times and you're focused so much as a pilot, you're focused primarily on the motors, on the engines, um, among other things, but you're going through that cadence as you're going up and focusing on your job, but you're still, it's just the sensations. And I remember Mark, as we roll, cause we roll, you know, you do your roll program on your back. And so the pilot's window is looking towards the East Coast. And I remember Mark going, look out the window, look out the window. And I'm like, why is he telling me that? You know, and, 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 but I, just, I thought I was supposed to look at the motors, you know, and, uh, but I think he wanted me to just have that experience because it's so unique. Yeah, but we had a little bit of excitement on 135. So it wasn't like we had everything under control right away. We had malfunction just before we launched and then we had the cabin pressure thing. So that was a little bit sporty too. Yeah, almost had to do an RTLS on the last flight of the shuttle program. I, I was sitting in my seat going, we're not doing an RTLS. We are yeah, not doing no it. That's return to landing site, I assume. Return to landing site, yeah. Yeah, we had a cabin a cabin leak indication, and it was a sensor. It's, and the phenomenon is what's known as cabin stretch, which Atlantis was somewhat well known for. Because Rex is kind of looking at the number going, well, this is kind of an RTLS rate. <laughs> and then I think, but wasn't it Butch Wilmore was our captain? Yeah, he was. Butch comes back and goes, okay, it's just cabin stretch, you know. And you're sitting there going, well, my ears aren't popping, so we must still have cabin pressure. Yeah, 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 exactly. It didn't, it didn't feel any different. I mean, although yeah. we're in our suits, so. It was a moment. So, um on the way up, you're kind of on automatic. You just said you're kind of out of control. But as a pilot, you actually do get to fly. The, the shuttle uh, on a couple of occasions, right? I, maneuvering around the station, uh, uh, rendezvousing, docking, I would imagine is got, you got some control. And then, of course, coming into land. So talk us through a little bit of what it's like to to maneuver that thing around the space station. And then I want to hear about what it's like to land it. For the pilots, traditionally, and this came along later in the process, because there was a time when when the pilots did not touch the controls on the shuttle. And then they're sitting there going, well, how does that make sense? Because this is going to be the person that's actually going to be the commander and do the lion's share of the of the flying or at least a significant portion. And so when I flew on both flights, traditionally it was the pilots would do the undocking and fly around, and then you would do some portion of the approach. And then on 135, and this is another story that maybe we should talk about a little bit, uh, there was a real unfortunate a happenstance on board ISS that almost uh, led to me actually flying the entire uh, coming home because Chris had a little issue in the MPLM, which we maybe will talk about a little bit later. But um, so on on STS-127, yeah, I, I Mark actually let me do some flying as we were coming up to the space station and, and then which was, you know, standard Mark, you know, and then then you fly the undock and fly around. And both of those were unique for me because it was the traditional way the first time, which is up and over the center portion of the ISS on 127. And then on STS-135, we backed out to 600 meters and then they rotated the ISS 90 degrees. And so we went up over the long 
So up over the solar arrays and did the fly around that way, which had never been done. So, so tell our listeners what the fly around is all about. Why do you do that? What we typically did those for was to image the space station as it aged. And the imagery folks on the ground and, of course, folks on the ISS program wanted to just see how things were weathering as the ISS was in orbit. And so that was a great opportunity to get a chance to do that. And it was certainly fuel-based. So if, if for whatever reason on ascent or during the rendezvous, we had used more fuel than we needed, then sometimes those fly-arounds were cut short. But on 135, you know, folks had the idea. In fact, I think Chris was one of the one of the advocates was, hey, let's do a fly-around the truss system rather than the habitable parts of the space station. And it was interesting because our equipment didn't work as well from a range and range rate perspective. So Rex was having to do a lot more with the uh, manual um, gun. You know, we had a little range meter uh, incorporated into because uh, our our normal tracking system wasn't hitting any radar reflectors on the truss segments as well. But that was the other the other bit of advice Mark Polanski Polanski had given me during the fly around was. Don't hit the space station, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Important safety tip. You, know, you can you can do anything else, but just don't hit the space station, and and you'll have a successful flyer. You don't want to be that guy. Okay, I got it. Yeah, you do so, not want to be that guy. So when you when the shuttle comes, when you bring it home, and now you're lined up on this gigantic runway, you, you've trained extensively in the training aircraft and everything like that to actually, you know, stick and rudder land the thing. But is that what you're doing on a real mission, or is it landing itself? Or are you are you actually flying it down to touchdown? Yeah, you're you're hand flying it. the The shuttle had the capability built in for it to land automatically, but it, there was never a lot of confidence in the system. Sounds like an F fourteen. <laughs> well, we would never do that. I don't know if you remember ACLS yeah. on the boat. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, nowadays everybody pushes the button in the cockpit and the airplane lands itself magically. We, In fact, when we were developing it, we called it the magic carpet. But ACLS, it was like you're taking your life in your own hands if you want ACLS to try to land your airplane. It was an emergency procedure uh, to use ACLS, which is automatic carrier landing system for our listeners. Oh, that's right. Thank you. And so so the normal MO for, certainly for the shuttle missions that I was you know, training for and did, the commander would get the shuttle on the heading alignment cone or heading alignment circle, which is the, you would fly a circle, some portion of, you know, anywhere from about 90 to 180 degrees around this circle as you're descending to line up on the particular runway you were going to land on. So the commander would get it on the hack, heading alignment circle, then the pilot would take it, fly it for a while. And that was just a chance, once again, to be in that environment with the vehicle and um, actually fly the shuttle. And I remember the first time I flew the shuttle, I may have used an expletive. I'm flying the <laughs> blank shuttle. And I just remember Mark looked, I looked over at Mark, Mark looked back at me and he was just beaming. You know, he had this huge smile on his face. And then, then, then the commander would take it back, usually to intercept final. And then you're kind of on that normal cadence of altitude, airspeed, all that stuff. And the commander's flying something similar to what we did in the Navy and the Marine Corps, the ball bar, we called it the, or we called it the ball bar, not the ball, but you flew it the same way. It was a visual landing aid. And then you're shooting for, you know, 205 or 195 touchdown, about 30 feet over the threshold. And then, you know, the gear comes down very late with the shuttle, you know, like 300 feet and then touchdown shoot comes out and, hopefully a, a successful landing, which in our case, both times commanders did awesome. Yeah. So let's go. I want to go back to reentry because I remember on ST, STS-135 way to nighttime reentry. And actually I was on the flight deck and that was the first time I'd seen the plasma glow through the window. And I remember looking at it going, huh, that's lasting a little bit longer than I thought it would. I had the same feeling on 135. I was like, man, this is lasting forever. And then all of a sudden, you know, we pop out and you can see the peninsula of Florida because we were coming in from over kind of, you know, the Yucatan, that that particular. So we're kind of coming southwest to northeast up towards KSC. And, yeah, I felt the same thing. You know, we were 
because we had extended one day. We were actually supposed to land on the, I think on the 20th of July, right? Which would have been an anniversary of the moon landing. But we extended one day because we had, you know, the the folks had done well managing power on one while we were docked and it helped us get everything transferred. Thank, and all that thank stuff. goodness we had that extra day. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, we were just, but, but anyway, I, I felt the same way. I was like, gosh, this, but that was my only dark entry as well. So maybe that was what it was, but I, I was the same thing. It was just, it was just these orange and pink and yellow over the windscreen. We were in the plasma for a long time. And then all of a sudden it was like breaking out on an approach, Sandy, you know, breaking out at like 300 feet. It was like, boom. all of a sudden we were in the clear, you could see Florida, the lights of Florida, and then probably wasn't five minutes and we were on the hack and turn and final. You know, on my first mission, it was a day landing. I remember looking out the window in one of the banks thinking, oh, that's what Mach 25 looks like. Holy crap, we're moving. Did you have one of those moments too? I absolutely did. It was like I equated to flying a low level because, you know, you come in, typically we would, if we we're going to Florida, we would deorbit somewhere over the Indian Ocean. And then about 55 minutes later, you would land in Florida. And yeah, as you're descending down to where you're relatively close to the clouds, so you're I don't know, 100,000 feet, 150,000 feet descending, and the clouds are just whipping by. And that's really the first time you realize, holy cow, we are really going fast. Yep. Yeah. It's kind of like going supersonic at 20,000 feet. Isn't that exciting? Until you get near a cloud and you go by, it's like, whoa, that's... That's, that's right. It's, it's, it's all relative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you've had a really uh, a unique uh, career in in one particular sense. There aren't a lot of people around who have piloted two different types of spacecraft. And you were on the first crewed SpaceX mission. So tell us about the differences between that and uh, flying on the shuttle as a crew member. In about every way possible, it could be different. It was different. <laughs> and, and not necessarily in a bad way. It was just, you know, first flight of a vehicle as a test pilot and and my crewmate, Bob, and probably one of my closest friends, you know, the way he said, it's the generational opportunity as a test pilot, you know, getting the chance to fly a new vehicle. And we were fortunate as test pilots. Bob was a, he was one of the test conductors for F-22 during its EMD. And I, I was um, doing EMD on Super Hornet. So we had the unique opportunity of maybe taking those lessons learned and going through that process which even within the astronaut office, we did not have, certainly, you know, in the mid-20-teens, we didn't have a lot of people that had been on EMB programs uh, for aircraft. And so we were lucky enough to get put together uh, for a lot of reasons, but I think that really helped us because SpaceX, um, certainly in that 2015, 2016 timeframe, you know, were learning a lot. They had a lot to learn not only about just flying rockets and, and cargo, but they had never flown people and, you know, just learning that aspect of it. And, you know, it's it's basically going in at the ground up, whereas with the shuttle program, and Sandy can tell you this, the training program was etched in stone. I mean, it was, everything was just so rote and laid out and the things you had to do, the, the blocks you had to check, the simulators you had to do, the different things, the evolutions you had to do was so, I mean, it was a well-traveled path at that point. Whereas with Dragon, we were coming up with the training. We were coming up with the display. We were coming up with, the, and not just Bob and I, obviously it was a, it was a huge team effort, but yeah, from the ground up and each system and how you wanted to operate the vehicle and how they envisioned and how Elon wanted the vehicle to be. And, and so all those competing priorities and, and then, oh, by the way, in those four or five years or six years, whatever it was, you know, those those guys blew up a few rockets. Yeah. They blew up the DM-1. Yeah. They blew up the DM-1 capsule after an extremely successful uncrewed test flight. Six weeks later, it was in a million pieces in at Kennedy. So working through those challenges, relearning how to develop parachutes for spacecraft. You know, we certainly didn't remember at NASA. SpaceX didn't know to a degree with which they needed to know. Boeing certainly underestimated that. So, you know, the challenges with developing a, a spacecraft with a reliable parachute system um, because it had to work, right? You know, frankly. So just all those challenges and, and a lot of time in Hawthorne and 
but it was you know, it was an incredible way to end my career, flying career, my NASA career. I mean, and then, you know, to actually splash down off the coast of Pensacola, where it all had started in 1989, uh, was pretty poetic, frankly. You know, I remember, you know, I was at the ground floor set in the station for training and stuff up. I remember the crews having a lot of bumps in the road just because the system around them was so new as well. What about cultural differences? You know, there's a big, we could probably go on for hours, but, you know, maybe speak a few words about the cultural differences. I mean, I think it would be fair to say that, you know, the culture of SpaceX in 2015, 2016 probably was not a lot different than NASA during the 60s as we were doing the Apollo program. You had a bunch of incredibly talented, smart, but very young, relatively inexperienced space people, but working uh, on a common goal and almost with uh, fanaticism, frankly. And then you had NASA, which was post end of the shuttle program, heavily reliant on the Russians, a bureaucratic beast. So it was a night and day, yin and yang, hugely. And I think, frankly, working with Boeing was a little bit more like working with NASA than it was with SpaceX. So it was a huge, in some ways, it was pretty refreshing. You you get out to SpaceX on a Monday or Tuesday morning, which was our typical, you know, we would, we would leave on Monday or Tuesday and spend most of the week out there with them and then fly back to Houston Thursday or Friday. And you could just feel the electricity in the air and the enthusiasm. Certainly those last couple of years as we were getting ready to go fly. Yeah, totally different. So uh, among the very many differences uh, between the SpaceX program and the shuttle program is the fact that you're taking uh, non-professional astronauts up with you. I mean, people who are uh, entering the program on a completely different path. Uh, what's that like? You know, you met these people, you flew with them, or at least you, you were, they were in the program with you. At the point with which we were doing this, I mean, there was talk about tourism and there was talk about this and talk about that. And it's amazing that, you know, we're in 2023 and Peggy with Axiom 2 is up there now. And that's the 10th crewed flight of Dragon in three years. Our anniversary for launch is what, tomorrow or I don't know, the 30th. So it's in a couple of days. So literally three years later, we've flown 10 crewed flights on Dragon. But I think for Bob and I, and the NASA part of this, you know, it was how do we have a spaceship that is flyable by maybe not not a, a, a tough island? You know, I think that's really was our goal is how do you make this vehicle, you know, that any certainly any professional astronaut is capable of being the commander and, and being able to handle all the situations and design the vehicle such that for the most part, it is automated. I mean, just like an airliner. I mean, if you talk to an airline pilot now, especially some of these newer aircraft, like an A330, I mean, it's pretty much just push the button, you're in the air, and the thing flies you to Singapore. And Dragon is very much that same way. And and so is Starliner. And I think to a degree, so is Orion. And, you know, so you become more of a system, a system manager than the dyed-in-the-wool, you know, steely-eyed test pilot and it's just it's it's embracing the technology, but it's also embracing the the dream, I think, of SpaceX. And and I f- think, frankly, all of us, it's like making space accessible to to just not a test pilot or a professional astronaut. It's, it's all these things. And then what you do with that, that that gift to get to go to space, that's uh, we could talk hours about that. I think there have been several people that have flown in space that it's been an ego trip and it, or it's been. Look at how much money I have. But for the most part, it can be very inspiring for, you know, somebody who maybe wouldn't have otherwise 10 years ago had the opportunity to get in space, to go into space and then to experience it through their through their eyes is pretty neat as well. Yeah, And if they do it right, they can spread sort of the, the good messages about manned space flight. And, and so absolutely. That's what most of us try and do. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think we feel like that's important for us to do that. But I think we're in those days where it's a little hit or miss right now. I would say that there's some things that I think have been incredibly inspiring. And I think other other things have been really, <laughs> you know, so. Well, it's still new, though, Doug. Everything when you know stuff starts, you know. So we're going to come back to the Dragon in a minute because we have a bunch of more questions. But I want to talk about your months on the ISS because 
you were there for two months and I was just curious what you what your impressions were because um, you were there long enough to experience that next level adaptation to space. And it's not easily noticeable when you're there. I only noticed that I had done that when 119 came to pick me up and they they you know they kind of flew into the space station. I'm looking at I'm like, oh my gosh, you guys are flying around so gingerly, just like rookies. So did you notice that you had adapted? And what what are your thoughts about your stay there? Oh, absolutely. You know, it was one of those things that, you know, I never expected to happen. So to set the stage in the early part of 2020, you know, we were down to one U.S. crew member on ISS. And so, you know, the smart people in the station program were like, hey, we got a couple guys going up to space station that have flown in space a few times and we could really put them to work in different ways. And, you know, we've got a bunch of EVAs we need to get done. And Chris Cassidy was up there by himself uh, from on the U.S. side. He had two Russian crewmates. But so there was a lot of stuff stacking up. And, you know, he's a super astronaut, but he's not he can't work 24 seven. It's just one person. Yeah. Yeah. So early in 2020, it was pretty much decided that, hey, you guys are going to go up there for at least a month, maybe as long as four or five months. And so in, in a sense, it was like, awesome, we're going to get to experience that actually living in space because the shuttle the shuttle flights were just such a sprint for it was two weeks of just full throttle and you were when you got back you were exhausted and they got every bit of work out of you that they could possibly get and so yeah it was really although i will tell you this sandy we had 10 weekends on space station and we worked eight of them yeah you were in sprint mode for there's just a long sprint it felt like a little bit more of a shuttle mission than it probably should have but we were able to still get some time to look out the window, spend some time in the cupola. Like every weekend, we would have dinner either in our side of the space station or the Russian side of the space station with our two Russian uh, colleagues. And the five of us, you know, became, I I think, a great functioning crew and everybody was pulling in the same direction. And we got to experience that. And I I would say, I don't know, it's probably at the three week or four week time frame where I kind of felt like I became a space creature, (laughs) you you know, where you're not banging into walls and you're not knocking stuff over as you're, you know, in your, your effort to push off is within that error band where you just can float through without hardly touching anything else. And, you know, every maneuver is efficient and in the lead up to the flight, it was unexpected, but I'm, I'm really, really glad I actually, you know, got to be a member of expedition 63 for a couple months. And we, think we made a difference. So it was, that was, it was, it was really rewarding to be able to do that. Back to the Dragon a minute. I, you know, I recall in my Soyuz training that the Soyuz has multiple downgrades in the event of loss of control, various kinds. And does the Dragon have something similar? I was just curious. It does. It, it has some, but depending on the mode, it was all an automated down modes. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity to fly the Dragon manually in a downgraded mode, pretty much just for in space around the space station, uh, certainly free flight, but for ascents and entries, ascent really the only manual intervention we could do was an abort. You know, we couldn't pilot the vehicle. And frankly, the the scheme for piloting was touchscreen. So yeah, you're not gonna fly a vehicle dynamically with a touchscreen. <laughs> 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 and so that's where Dragon in some ways differed from Starliner. Because Starliner, you could do a manual entry, and it had a traditional THC, RHC, whereas Dragon just touchscreen. So uh, let's talk about landing. You, we we talked about landing the shuttle, and you're you're actually sort of flying an airplane down in a way, a glider, uh, plasma, and all that. But Dragon, it's almost like a Mercury or a Gemini type landing, right? I mean, you're you're sp- spun around, and you you. Uh, burn your way through the atmosphere and land with parachutes. How did that feel compared to the shuttle? As Sandy will tell you, you know, we had to depend on um, the folks that had flown Soyuz because that was our only real, real-time experience base that we had in the astronaut office at that time it was was the Soyuz flyers. And it was, a, by all accounts, a pretty similar, I guess, profile in that, you know, it's a higher G profile coming back than shuttle, much higher. I mean, shuttle, you were on the order of a G and a half is probably the most G you pulled on the entry. Whereas you were four or five G nominal entry G's coming in on Dragon. Our concern or my concern coming back in was the 
the way Dragon is designed, you know, with the Super Dracos, they kind of bulge out on the side of the vehicle. So control as you're coming down through the atmosphere is a little bit maybe, you know, Elon had some concerns. Some of the aero folks had some concerns that the vehicle wouldn't have control authority as it got into the thicker air because it was all this different wind resistance over those what we called the mud flaps that covered the Super Dracos. And so I was half expecting to lose control authority, the automatic control authority. And of course, the solution at that point was to put the drogues out early, but the vehicle did great. And that was the thing with Dragon that differed so much with shuttle was just the noise coming back in, going up too, but coming back in because you're sitting so close to the reaction control system, the wind noise, you can hear and feel the parachutes as they're kind of streamed out uh, above you. You can hear the rope rub, rubbing against the huh. the hatch. I mean, you can just do everything. And then, of course, you can feel the decel because you're hypersensitive to G after being in space a few months. Even when the drogues came out, I didn't I have to look at the displays to see the decel on the display. I could feel it. And then all of a sudden, then you feel the, the shoot, the drogues cut away, and then the mains go out. And then when they start disreefing, they they do that in stages. You can feel all of that very, very distinctly. But you're also, you're spinning. You're almost like a pendulum. Wow. It's like an amusement park ride. <laughs> it very much is like a roller coaster ride there for, I don't know, 30 seconds. And then you hit the water. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then yeah, you hit the water. And I, you know, the thing I re recall about the water was it was a harder impact than I expected it to be. But it, I mean, it was just, I don't know, whatever expectation it was, it just felt like it was a little bit harder hit. And then, you know, you see the water go up over the windows and you're like, okay, hopefully she floats. And then, <laughs> and, then, and, and, then, and then you hear the pyros. Once again, you feel and hear the pyros as the shoots get disconnected uh, from the vehicle. You know, you're kind of bobbing. And then, unfortunately, with Dragon, the windows were so pitted from the reentry that they really were only, we only had two windows in Dragon. And they were kind of, as you're sitting, they were crossed the other side on each side of the main hatch, the side hatch. But they, at that point, just became day-night indicators because they were so covered with soot and, and the byproducts of the reentry and the heat shield ablating, you know, until one of the SpaceX guys had got on the side of the vehicle and then he kind of put his face in the window and we're waving to him. But, I mean, it was, yeah, much more dynamic entry than what you would experience with shuttle. And I think, you know, Sandy has the uh, added bonus well yeah you landed in the soyuz right so you no i know that's I right you came back on shuttle every time i was on the cadillac yeah so that's what my wife tells me that you know the the other obviously big ticket item is the soft landing jets and the actual landing on the ground is pretty pretty noticeable um part of the flight as you're guest up and sometimes with a bounce so the bonus bounce. And then a rollover on the side. <laughs> and then a rollover. He's like, ah. And then sometimes they've been <laughs> drugged by the chutes a little bit. The chute drags them along the, the steps of Kazakhstan as Rod. I think they call that Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. I remember your landing. There were a lot of boats and tourists doing tourist thing in there when you guys were getting retrieved. Almost to the point where it was adding risk to the effort. It was a big deal. You remember that? I, I absolutely do. And it was funny because... We weren't aware of it when we were in the water because we couldn't see out the window. And I remember distinctly, we were sitting there, let's just say it was six or eight months prior to the actual flight, sitting there with the SpaceX folks, and we're talking about recovery. And I remember Bob saying something about, because Bob is the smartest guy in any room, he said something about, you know, people are going to want to see it, blah, 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 this. And then SpaceX is like, yeah, we've never had any trouble with any of our cargo missions. <laughs> And then that's where I said, it's different. You know, people on vehicle is different. And then, you know, the fact that we landed 25, 30 miles off the coast of Pensacola, everybody looked at that restriction that was put on the nautical, whatever it was. And there were a bunch of boats. So when I first saw it, and Sandy, you'll understand this one. When I first saw it, we were on the boat. We got out of, the, out of uh, Endeavor and we were in the, the room. You know, we had these, um, they've got on the recovery ship, they've got four different beds and, you know, medical all uh, set up and there's curtains between them. 
and there was windows on one side and I had to, you know, Joe Gervais was my flight surgeon. We had some of the, the nurses were there and, pe- you know, there's people everywhere and you're trying to get you out of your spacesuit. I'm like, Joe, I got to pee. So I had to stand up. So I said, help me out. And so I stood up and I'm looking out the window as I'm doing this. And I'm like, where did all those boats come from? You know? (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, you guys didn't see him. I'm like, Joe, we can't see out the windows. I mean, it's just, it's, uh, and I just laughed. And then, you know, then it was like, somebody's like, well, it must be the, you know, the redneck Navy and this, that, and the other thing. And I mean, they just went on and on. on. Yeah, it was dangerous though. They were in your landing zone. Well, that's why I saw some video later and I was like, man, they got pretty close. And, you know, with all the hyper galls and off gassing and all this stuff. And it's just so SpaceX very quickly and the Coast Guard very quickly learned their lesson. And I know they have a much bigger exclusion zone now around the landing areas when folks are coming back. You know, we're getting close to the end here. I'm really interested with all the experience you've had. It's just uh, pretty amazing to to be able to talk to you. What are your thoughts on the future of, of uh, manned spaceflight? There's a lot of ambitions out there. Go to Mars, go to the moon, that sort of thing. Where do you come down on, on where we're headed? Well, I mean, I'm excited. And, and, and Sandy could tell you this too. I mean, I, I lived through two or three moon programs as an astronaut and it's good to see one stick because I think the common, the common misconception is, is, you know, oh, you know, we landed on the moon. And in fact, I remember somebody saying that might even been one of the presidents say, oh, we've already done that. And it's like, we have barely scientifically scratched the surface with the moon. So, so the science part of it, I think, is, is, is certainly way valid for continuing lunar exploration. The inspiration it would provide for this, whatever our next generation of STEM field kids that are, you know, like my son's age, you know, kids that are 12, 13, 14 years old, what are they going to do? And, you know, when we see Nicole Mann plant you know, the flag on the moon, you know, in the not too distant future, because she's probably one of my favorite astronauts, if not my favorite. She's just, she's super. Hopefully she'll be one of them. And, and we're, we're going to need that. Infectious. Yeah. You know, it, it, it is. It's what did it for me. I'm sure it's what, it, to some degree, what did, what it did for, for Sandy, you know, that's what got us into these fields to start with. So I think it's, you know, it's science, it's, it's the inspiration. And then it's like, you know, this is what the United States should be doing. I mean, we should be putting astronauts on the moon. And then from a purely from a test pilot perspective, and, you know, to me, it's like we need to figure a lot of things out before we send people to Mars. And the the nearest analog we have is two days away, and it's called the moon. And Sandy will tell you this because she's got a lot more time on space station than I do, but stuff breaks up there. And we can't afford And we... We ship more. So in fact, I, I replaced a avionics box. I think it was for the treadmill that Sandy and I had taken up on 135, that replacement equipment, five or six years later, whatever, 10 years, nine years later. But my point being is you can't have stuff break when we go to Mars or we've got to have a way to manufacture it while we're there. Yeah. And so that that analog using a lunar base or using the, the lunar um, missions that we that we currently have on the books, that's where we're going to figure those things out and have that confidence that eventually will will lead us there. So from a test pilot perspective, I, I think for no other reason, if we think we think and it's not just going to be the United States, obviously, if we think as as humanity, we we want to go to Mars and put people on Mars, we have got to kind of run every scenario through and 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 concept and the way we want to run a mission to a human mission to Mars, we've got to run it all like a dress rehearsal on the moon. Because then we're only two days away, not six months away from getting something to the crew. So as we wrap up here, Doug, why don't you let our listeners know what you're up to these days since you left the office? About a year and a half ago, I started working for North Grumman out here in Utah. And so this is the part of Northrop Grumman that builds the solid rocket motors. And so they were the ones, formerly Orbital ATK and ATK before that, who built the solid rocket motors for Space Shuttle. One of our former bosses, Charlie Precourt, was the vice president general manager out here. And in fact, it was you, Sandy, who suggested we maybe chat. And we did. And 
Charlie was like, you really need to come out here. This is Charlie Precourt, um, former chief of the office who hired me. So Charlie has hired me twice for two great jobs and I'm, you know, funneling money to him every day. <laughs> I, I mean, he just said, you should come out and see, you know, and I had been out here many times as an astronaut, you know, we come out to give out awards or just to see what's going on with the, with the boosters. And, and it just, it just ended up being a good fit. I hope you're, if you're in Park City, you're a skier. Yeah. In fact, my son uh, learned how to ski this winter. And I got on skis for the first time, and I, I don't even know if I want to say how many decades, but it was more than two. <laughs> but you got to get your adrenaline somehow, so uh, you know, why not find another way? Yeah, so it was, it was great. You know, we both my wife and I wanted to live in the mountains, and it just kind of seemed like a good fit. And uh, so far, so good. We've really, we've really enjoyed living out here and getting the change of seasons. Although we picked, we picked one heck of a winter. This last winter was incredible out in the Mountain West, and so. Uh, but we got to do a lot of skiing. I skied in April and, and May for the first time. So, And they said it was going to be a terrible season, and it ended up great. But, well, look, you know, Doug, this has been a, a fantastic experience, I know, for me. And I know it's been for Sandy to be, have a reunion with you and certainly for our listeners. And and this is a great way to to close out our, our fourth season. This is our 40th episode. We, we've uh, also done, we've done a flight director, we've done a, a rocket designer, and now we've done somebody who actually gets to fly the things. And it's really been a fun conversation. I think we're going to get a lot of good comments from people who really want to know what it's actually like to be an astronaut. You know, you, 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 you don't really get that, that inside look, and we really appreciate you spending time with us today. Uh, it was my pleasure. And, and as I said at the beginning, it's just always great to get to hang out, catch up with Sandy. You know, it's, uh, we've just had such a great uh, experience. I, in fact, I, when I first kind of really got to know Sandy, I was the DOR over in Russia. And she was, um, you know, her and Peggy were coming over as you guys were getting ready to train for your mission. And Well, we were getting all of the service module FGB stuff set up to fly. That's what we were doing over there first. Well, at first, yeah. And then, of course, obviously getting to fly with her on, on, on 135. So it's it's always nice to get an excuse to hang out with her. We had fun on 135. And great to meet you too, Sandy. All right. Well, thanks again. And uh, good luck to you in the future. That was veteran NASA astronaut Doug Hurley. I'm Sandra Magnus. And I'm Sandy Winnefeld. That's it for season four. It's hard to believe we've completed our 40th episode. Join us next season for more episodes of The Adrenaline Zone.